Welcome to episode 456 with my guest, Oren J. Sofer. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. I am not a therapist, and this is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. And listen to this for a minute, and I think that'll become very obvious. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod, also the social media handles that you can follow. Follow us at. Uh, I want to read some loves. This is from the loves survey. And oh, before I do that, uh, we have a winner for the cutting board that I made. Uh, the number that I chose was uh, 339, and the closest guest was 338 by a Patreon donor named John Mitchell. A nice English fellow, so uh, I will be shipping him. Uh, I, I'm going to ship it up by the Queen Mary, though, so he should be getting that in about three months. And I'm going to ship it uh, in the care of a couple that dresses up like it's 1898, and they will bow when they present it to him. Uh, thank you, everybody that submitted a guest through uh, through Patreon. And if you are not a Patreon donor, consider becoming one. You can do it for as little as a, as a buck a month, and it it's an important part of keeping the show going. All right. This is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself loved alone. And she writes, I love connections. People, sure, but that's not what I mean. I love how the brain or mind or consciousness makes connections. When pieces of information and understandings fall into place to allow the mind to see the bigger picture like a puzzle, the trumpets of aha, the, the trumpets out ah moment. I suppose epiphanies, question mark? It does not have to be mental health understandings, but also in learning a new hobby, task, or job, even the understanding of a person or oneself. The click of that connection of a logical understanding has been made, and then things suddenly make sense. Oh, I have goosebumps. I love that one. I love that. That is such, such a great feeling that reprieve of just having a minute of not telling yourself I'm an idiot. <laughs> this is an email I got from uh, a person, uh, Yee Man, and uh, they write, Hello, I got connected to you through LinkedIn. I want to discuss an opportunity we can discuss about in due course together. If interested, kindly write back to me. Well, I can't tell you how relieved I am that they qualified it by saying in due course together because I'm very old-fashioned when it comes to sharing business proposals. Uh, I'm very old-world. I take it slow. The, the fir Before we even discuss the actual business opportunity, we meet for coffee, and all four of our parents are there, all eight grandparents all 16 great-grandparents, and if anyone has passed, we just roll in their casket. We stack them three high if, unfortunately, they're not, they're not still kicking. And all we do is we talk about the weather, and nobody makes eye contact. The second step, separate day, we wait a year. We meet for a light lunch. We do this alone, no chaperones. We again discuss the weather. The third time we get together for a really heavy cream-based dinner and everybody comes back, 
all the parents, the grandparents, the great-grandparents, maybe even a couple of stragglers, everybody gets together and fucks on a big pile of money. Again, no eye contact. Five years after that, we're married. I will only discuss business proposals with somebody that I'm married to. And everybody gets back together. We all pile into a balcony at an opera. And while I'm looking through my little opera glasses, you whisper your business idea in my ear. And if I don't like it, I jump from the balcony to my death. One of our sponsors for today, and let's hope to God they haven't listened. One of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com. If you have never tried online counseling, and if you're wondering if I need counseling, yeah, I think that's apparent so far. Uh, I love my my counselor. Her name's Donna, and uh, she helps me every week. Every Monday afternoon, we do a video session, and um, I just love it. I'm a big fan of BetterHelp.com. I've been doing it for a couple of years and it's helped me in so many ways. So if you're interested in checking it out, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental so they know you came from this podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire and if they have a counselor they think is a good match for you, they'll match you up with a BetterHelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. And then this is a happy moment from the happy moment survey filled out by a woman who calls herself LL Cool Teacher. She writes, I recently started teaching at a new school. On my first day during my breakfast duty, a kindergartner came up to me to ask if I had children or a husband. When I replied that I did not, she was shocked and said, you ain't got a man? Later, when she was in my classroom, she asked if I had tattoos, quote, everywhere. I'm heavily tattooed, and the students are generally curious about my tattoos. I answered, yes, for the most part. This is when she began to explain that when I get old and wrinkly, my tattoos will all blend together and not look, quote, very good. I laughed and said I was okay with that. She then said, this is why you ain't got a man, and walked away. Nobody's, Nobody's cool, cool and everyone's scared, scared. And, and we're just all in this together. <laughs> there was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks were so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I'm one out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm gonna stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm gonna help you one day. People are gonna love you for that. It takes a lot of work. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Orin J. Sofer, who is a communications uh, facilitator, educator. Trainer and meditation teacher. Um. You have a, a, a book that I think is so important for 
people of all ages to read. Mm. Uh, it's called Say What You Mean. And in it, you break down how to communicate effectively and how our emotions, how we perceive relationships, needs, feelings, the words to use, how yeah. to recognize things. It's all interconnected. Yeah. And it's so hugely important uh, for every aspect of our lives. You know, it, it to me is a book that, that we should give to parents, mm. to kids. Mm. Um, Thank you. Yeah. It, it's, um, I can't imagine that any relationship wouldn't have more clarity if both people read this, whether it was a boss and a coworker or two partners or anybody. Yeah. Anybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, where do we, where do we start? You know what? Let's start with your life because uh -huh, I'd kind of uh -huh. like to know the background of what, uh -huh. what led you into this and your experiences and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Thanks. Give me some snapshots from, from your life. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, uh, I come from a Jewish family, um, middle class, uh, grew up in Jersey. Um, and I've got one older brother and, um, my brother's had different challenges, different times of his life. And so in the family system, I took on the role of being the, the good, the good son, the perfect child, that kind of dynamic. Mm -hmm. And parents um, got enough on their plate. Exactly. They don't me ha need me having needs right. or emotions. It's amazing the way children pick that up, you know, uh, immediately and know just what's needed for others to fit in mm -hmm. and belong and make mom and dad happy. So I, you know, at some level on a very early age, picked that up and, um, you know, slotted right into that role. So, um, so a lot of my conditioning was around, um, pleasing others and doing, um, doing the best that I could, um, to make others happy. And, um, and at the same time, you know, growing up as a heterosexual white male, I also got a lot of messages from society that, um, you know, I can do what I want and I'm in, I'm, it's okay for me to have needs. So there was sort of this mix of, you know, societal messages around feeling empowered and then family messages around um, not being not not being okay to be myself completely or have problems or needs. Um, so uh, one of the snapshots, uh, this is a this is a, <laughs> a fun place to start that I tell in the book was a story. Uh, so. I started meditating when I was uh, in my late teens, about 19. Um, and you're how old now? Uh, I am 41. Okay. Yeah. So my uh, folks were getting divorced, and um, I had I was a child actor in New York City. Um, so I was running around New York, going to auditions, doing a lot of drugs, just generally being a 19-year-old, but also uh, in a lot of pain. And... Um, decide heard about uh, meditation and um, got really interested and so I ended up actually going to India and um, living in a monastery kind of diving in head first and and this really changed my life um, showed me that there were people um, 
who I wanted to emulate, who had something, some kind of understanding or peace or, you know, brightness inside that I was like, I don't know what you got, man, but I want some of that. Mm-hmm. And so I started meditating. So, and then um, kind of a couple years in, I had um, an argument with my brother. Uh, and, you know, kind of like a classic family dynamic argument around something really stupid of, you know, who's going to help clean up after the Thanksgiving meal or something like that, you know, where the history of like, I always do more and you don't do your share is kind of present. And um, all the unexpressed needs and emotions attached to them. Exactly. And so it's never about the thing in right. the present moment. Right. It's about the, what do they say? If it's uh, hysterical, it's historical. Mm, that's nice. I haven't heard that before. Mm-hmm. So um, we're at my grandma's house, holiday meal, argument with my brother, who's going to clean up afterwards. He says something that sends me and I just lose it. So I, I pick up this chair, this wood chair, and I'm just enraged and um I actually like I scream at the top of it's totally dramatic. I scream at the top of my lungs and smash the chair on the floor to, until it breaks, and then like storm out of the house and cry. And um, so this is like a few years into meditating. And there must have been a lot of dishes. You know, <laughs> as you said, it's never about the actual thing. So um, you know, I was a few years into meditating, and I thought I you know like had some handle on myself. But what this episode really revealed to me was that okay, there's a lot of unprocessed anger and hurt and pain here, in particularly this relationship and and in my family. Um, and so it it kind of opened my eyes to the need to not just go internal in terms of the meditation, but actually begin to look at how is this showing up in my relationships? Am I I handling um, the deeper stuff that might not, you know, might not show up when we're sitting with our eyes closed, but, you know, breathing or practicing meditation, but which comes up very quickly in relationships, particularly family relationships. So um, that and then other, other situations where the values or kind of deeper intentions of the meditation practice weren't translating into my relationships with colleagues, with family members. So you weren't road testing. Well, I was, and I was crashing miserably, (laughs) you know? And so I realized I need some more tools here. I need something to help me to translate some of this, uh, some of this meditation stuff into my relationships. And and what a great example of the, the difference between knowing something and knowing how to use yeah. something. Yeah, there's a difference between having values and intentions and having skills yeah. that we can actually apply. And so that's that's when the communication training started to come in, where uh, I learned about a guy named Marshall Rosenberg, who's the founder of nonviolent communication, which is the main communication technique that I'm trained and certified in. Um, and as soon as I started, uh, you know, listening to him, uh, speak and, uh, being exposed to his ideas, you know, one of the first things, uh, that we learn in nonviolent communication is, you know, part of what makes us human is that we share these basic fundamental needs, needs for belonging, acceptance, understanding beyond our physiological needs, needs for meaning, contribution. And it was like a light going off. And so I was like, oh my gosh. 
I have needs. I have needs. And that my emotions were there for a reason, that they were pointing back to something that matters to me. And that when I was having an argument or disagreeing with someone or getting angry, that there was a good reason for it. It's because some need of mine wasn't being met. And that if I could be aware of that, not only could I communicate it more clearly to the other person in a way that they could hear, but it, it empowered me to feel more agency and more choice around, okay, like, well, now that I know what I actually need, what's actually important to me, how do I go about taking care of this? Isn't it amazing how often negative behavior on our part is a result of feeling trapped, mm. like like we don't have a choice mm -hmm. in something in our life, mm -hmm. when in reality there's almost always a choice it, it, if we don't have control over something at least how to react exactly to this situation yeah yeah they're very you know we tell ourselves we live in a society in a culture that operates from a paradigm of of um obligation and obedience to authority and so and that that system gets internalized you know so as children we're socialized to obey adults and obey authority and then and then um, that becomes the internal oppressor in our own mind. And it's like, I have to do this. I need to do this. I should do this. This is the right thing to do. And all the joy goes out of life because we're living our life based on these ideas of I have to, and I need to, and I should, and I must without actually being aware that, you know, fundamentally I'm actually at choice. Mm -hmm. There's nothing anyone can force us to do, right? Things have consequences. Our, cho our choices and our actions have results, but if we really look at it, we're, we're continually at choice. And as you say, even when our external options are limited, we have that internal choice of how I'm relating and how I'm responding to what's happening. I'm, I'm thinking right now of uh, an episode we did with a, a guy who was uh, an IRA soldier, volunteer, whatever you want to uh, call it. And he was there during the hunger strikes mm -hmm. and the early 80s mm. in Northern Ireland. Mm. And when their rights were being taken away, they were being changed from political uh, status, uh, political prisoner mm -hmm. status, mm -hmm. which had certain freedoms to it, to criminal oh, wow. status, yeah. which had almost no freedoms. Mm -hmm. um, their only choice to react was to not wear the uniforms, mm -hmm. which meant wearing no clothes, Wow. And then when they were taken out of their cells to use the bathroom, they were beaten. So they began just going to the bathroom in the cell and smearing their feces wow. on the yeah. on the wall. Right. And in their mind, it was the only dignified sure. choice they had to make yeah. to find whatever agency or safety yeah. they had. And I think probably in most people's minds they they would not even consider right those things but for them it was about preserving their dignity yeah. and making a statement and then once they began the guards began coming in and beating them in their cell and mm -hmm. throwing boiling water on them they decided we will starve ourselves to death we mm -hmm. will refuse food and mm -hmm. eventually that was the thing that yeah that broke it that broke it but yeah. um yeah I I digress. I yeah, just, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very powerful. I mean, I'm just you know taking in what you're saying and just the both the brutality um, that we are capable of as human beings, and then also the you know the 
the example of the strength of the human spirit to even under the most horrific uh, abuse to stay connected to that capacity for dignity and choice and inner freedom, even when our external freedom is taken away. And, you know, you, so you're bringing in an example of like some of the most extreme circumstances, which hopefully, um, you know, none of us will ever have to experience in our lives. And, you know, the places where we do feel like I don't have a choice, I have to do this. If we really step back and look and consider, okay, why am I doing this? What, what is this giving me? What needs am I meeting by doing this? Even if it's just, well, I need a paycheck so I can put food on the table or have a roof over my head. And we recognize, yeah, I value like having a place to live and my physical well-being. And even though I hate this job and I hate my manager and I don't feel good about like the work that I'm doing, it's more important to me to have a place to live. I could choose to be homeless. I could choose to live on the street, but that's not a choice I want to make. So then as soon as we become aware of what those needs are, it we can feel more of the sense of agency. I am actually choosing to do this on one level, recognizing that, you know, in so many situations, there are so many other circumstances outside of our control, whether it's the economy, our society, our social location, or traffic, the, the forces, <laughs> traffic that is, that are, you know, limiting, limiting our, um, our options. You know, Nelson Mandela tells, uh, very powerful story that, that's, um, uh, well known about, you know, leaving, uh, the prison on Robben Island in South Africa and um, recognizing as he walked out, um, recognizing that if he didn't forgive his captors, that he would still be in prison. And that that internal choice about how he was thinking about and relating to the experience and to the people um, who jailed and oppressed him and 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 uh, abused him and, you know, robbed years, you know, decades of his life, that if he wasn't able to come to peace with that and find forgiveness, which doesn't mean condoning the actions. Or, uh, or having contact with them. Yeah, yeah. It just means uh, not poisoning our own heart and mind with bitterness, that if he could if he did it, couldn't do that, he would still be in jail. He would still be imprisoned. And so there's a, that's another example of that kind of uh, internal choice and freedom we have when we can really identify what's important to us and what, what matters to us. So let's imagine that there's somebody out there who was deeply wronged mm-hmm. by someone mm-hmm. and they can't let go yeah. of that resentment. What is standing in their way? Because... yeah. The people that just say you need to forgive that person, right? You need to that's move not on. Help. That's you need not to helpful. let go. No, it's not. If anything, it makes it worse because then right. they feel resentful sure. and guilty. Right. There's then there's the layer of blame and shame that that yes. comes on socially. I mean, I think forgiveness is one of the most misunderstood um, capacities of the of the human heart, and we think that it means forgetting. We think it means condoning. Um, we think it means pretending it didn't happen and it's none of those things that we don't forgive for the other person. We forgive for ourselves. We forgive for our own freedom. And, um, again, I think it's Nelson Mandela who said, um, you know, holding on to a grudge and uh, nursing resentment is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to get sick. Yes. It's, it's amazing. So, so I think that, you know, forgiveness is a process. It's not something that we can force. It's not something, it's not something that we actually do. It's, um, it's a, it's a kind of, um, 
like the heart forgives when it's ready on its own timeline. And so I think the bet that the most that we can do is to cultivate the intention to forgive. And even if we can't get there, it's like, all right, may I want to forgive someday? Yeah. Even starting there. And that starts to orient us towards the possibility of, of an inner freedom. But I think that one of the things that can get in the way of that um, is there's there's a healing process around you know hurt and um and having been on the receiving end of acts that are painful that didn't meet our needs and um that were wildly unjust yeah yeah and and so i think being able to deeply acknowledge the pain that we feel and to mourn to really mourn uh, the loss or the, the 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 blow, the impact of whatever the actions were, whether it's abuse or you know oppression, um, to to allow the heart to grieve is an essential step in forgiveness. And I think that sometimes, particularly you know, depending on our views or our religion or spirituality, sometimes we can be too quick to forgive and we mm. skip over yeah. the process of really metabolizing the effects of a situation or an action. And talking, so that, talking about it, journaling, yes, crying, yes, maybe community, reaching out to others, yes. punching a, a bag. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. All of, all of those creative ways of, of contacting, feeling, and digesting the the emotions, and then going going to that level as we've been talking about of you know from the perspective of nonviolent communication, as I talk about in my book, the our feelings are information, our emotions are really kind of ancient biological signals that give us uh, information about what's important to us. If we didn't, if something didn't matter, we wouldn't care about it. We wouldn't feel anything about it. Right. So our emotions point to deeper needs and values. And so even as it's essential to contact and feel the emotions in a situation, whether we're talking about desire for forgiveness or just some kind of a conflict or difference or challenge we're facing, um, we want to go deeper. We want to go one step further and actually inquire, okay, now what matters to me here? What is it that I'm actually needing or valuing or wanting at the deeper level? Because that's where we we regain our sense of clarity and power and choice, and also where we touch into our shared humanity. Because we see when we get to that level, we recognize um, this isn't just about me. Right. This is about being human. And this these feelings that I'm experiencing are connected to something deeper that's not only mine, but that's shared by all humanity. And that's also part of healing and forgiveness, I think, is recognizing that the hardships that we face, whether it's loneliness or anxiety or depression or anger, you know, that those are not the the the, the myth, the story that our emotions tell are that they're gonna last forever. And that I'm alone, and I'm the only one who feels this way, mm-hmm. often, and and that they were done to us. Yeah, that somebody made me feel somebody this way. Made me feel this way. That's another huge one. And and as we start to explore and investigate from different perspectives, we recognize no, this is everyone feels this way at some point. Mm-hmm. This is if 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 there if there's a word for it, it means somebody else felt this way. <laughs> That's why there's a word yes. for it, you know. And so we start to see. Um, 
our our shared our shared common humanity and that and that too can be can be freeing it can take some of the edge edge off so when we stop running from our pain we stop we face the monster mm-hmm. cry the tears mm-hmm. scream out the anger share it with another person get vulnerable mm-hmm. we get a sense of our humanity mm-hmm. and then that allows us to recognize that pain in humanity and other people including the people who harm may us. have harmed us yeah and 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 the beauty of um, I want I want to put a little pin in this because I want to come back to something about mm-hmm. what you just said but I'll just finish this thought first which is you know part of the gift and the beauty in that process is and I've seen this in myself many, many times. I see it in the students that I work with when I teach retreats and workshops. When we are able to stay with that process and come to that other side of of acceptance um, and and connection with what we're actually feeling, it opens us to compassion. Not not exclusively or only for the person on the other side who maybe harmed us, but it opens our heart to others. We see like that. Everyone feels pain, everyone suffers, and we feel we can feel more connected mm-hmm. you know even even you know you see people on the street, so you you were asking about personal personal stories so um in addition to you know having mental illness in my family uh of origin um I've had health health issues for mm, the last sixteen years chronic health issues on and off. I had Lyme disease for three years. Wow. Really went through it with the Lyme. I'm, I'm better now, fortunately. How long did it go undiagnosed? We found it right away. Wow. And it still took three plus years to kick because I got a co-infection and I had a weakened immune system from the other health issues I had. So, But during that, one of the, one of the gifts of that time was... Number one, I don't take my health for granted anymore, but it opened it opened my heart to to others to recognize our vulnerability, you know, and to see. I remember one very specific moment where I was I was traveling uh, back to the East Coast, maybe to visit family or teach, and I was walking on the plane and um, looking at this this guy in front of me, um, young guy, seemed healthy and a feeling envy. I was like, you know, this guy is, you know, here he is and he's, you know, healthy and young and he doesn't know it. And then I realized, I kind of caught myself and I realized, I said, you know, you don't know, Oren. You have no idea what this guy's living with. He might have terminal cancer. You know, he might have a sibling who's in the hospital. And and then, and then that was the first thing. And so and then my heart opened some and softened. And then I realized, and you know what? Even if he's completely healthy right now, we're all going to get sick one day. You know, it's just a matter of when, and 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 it was that wasn't morbid. It was, it was freeing. It was my I felt tender inside towards this person, and it wasn't any longer like, oh poor me that I'm sick and everyone else isn't, and da 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 da. It was like, wow, you know, like this person is going to suffer too at some point. Right. I want to go back to what you're saying about the the processing our pain and feeling the feelings and crying and and um. I want to talk about the conditions that allow that to happen. And you, uh, you mentioned when I first when I first came in, and we were chatting that you wanted to talk some about somatic experiencing, mm-hmm. which is um, a, f- a form of healing. It's a healing modality that was developed by a guy named Peter Levine, who is a biologist studying animals in the wild. 
And what he discovered was that uh, animals, um, even though they face life-threatening situations on a regular basis, don't suffer from PTSD. And so he wanted to understand why. What's the difference? You know that a human being can be in a life-threatening situation, actual or perceived, and an animal can be, and the human being ends up experiencing PTSD and maybe their life never being the same. Whereas an animal gets over it and they're fine. Um, and that is that exclusively in the in the wild, or would that also go for animals roaming a city street where maybe they were being, you know? harmed over and over again or yeah i i I don't know my guess is it's more animals in the wild yeah that that would be my guess too yeah you know you can have uh and there's some very beautiful stories actually about um you know you know uh, dogs or cats who are abused and if they don't have the opportunity to recover then yeah they'll they'll develop ptsd and some very beautiful stories about um a program where with um uh, inmates, prisoners being paired with abused dogs and the healing that can occur between them because, and I remember once hearing one story about, um, an interview with this one man who was, uh, who was in jail and part of this program. And, uh, you know, this dog who had been abused, who, uh, and I think with some of these animals, it's like, you know, the, they, they act out and, uh, and bite and get very aggressive, um, because of the PTSD, and it's like they're either going to be put down mm-hmm. or they need some kind of rehabilitation. And the interviewer asking the prisoner, saying, you know, how come you're able to work with this animal and no one else can? And the prisoner says, you know, because I understand how he feels. I understand how, how it feels to be cornered and afraid and, uh, you know, and not have anyone understand you. So, um, so Peter Levine studies these animals in the wild and he recognizes that there's a, that as, as mammals that we have this innate healing capacity, but that what, what happens as human beings is that our, our neocortex and the kind of thinking brain, um, will inhibit the natural healing response. So when we have some kind of a, you know, difficult situation, even a traumatic event that as we start to process it, crying, shaking, you know, um, that either we ourselves will shut that process down either because we feel scared or uncomfortable with it, um, or it doesn't feel socially appropriate or others around us will interrupt the process, right? How many times have we seen adults saying to children, don't cry, don't cry. It'll be okay. So fucked up. Right. So in, in, in that we're, we're interrupting the natural cycle of the organism to cry, to complete the responses that have been stimulated by a situation. So somatic experiencing is a, it's a whole modality that is designed to help heal from challenging, um, circumstances, uh, abuse, event, trauma, and so forth. One of the core principles that I want to bring forth here in terms of emotional healing is that the first and most essential um, kind of response uh, is to strengthen the foundation of well-being and resilience in the organism. And so when we think about healing from 
uh, harm, injury, abuse, emotional pain, and that, you know, uh, message that we can get, um, which has truth to it and which is powerful, which says you need to get it out. You need to feel it. Um, sometimes what we need to do first is more to develop strength and actually to put our attention, turn our attention away from the pain not because we're avoiding it, and this is really key because we all have those avoidance strategies, but because we recognize that we might not have the resources to be with it yet. Mm. And so it's like the analogy that I use is it's like um, if a child, uh, you know, wants something or wants attention and we're busy and we don't have time. Um, we don't say to that child, get lost, kid, forget it. You know, you don't count, <laughs> mm -hmm. hopefully. <laughs> You know, um, nor do we drop what we're doing and say, what do you need? You know, whatever, whatever you need, it's fine. Right. We engage with the child. And we say, I really hear that you want, you know, you want my attention right now, that this is important to you and it's important to me too. And right now, daddy doesn't have time. So I'm going to finish doing this and later we'll, we'll, we'll work on this. We'll talk about this, whatever it is. Right. And so developing that relationship with ourself. So that if there is something that we are struggling to heal or to, to, to overcome or to, to process, and we recognize this is overwhelming, and that's the key is to see what is the level of intensity of the experience and do I have the resources to handle it? If I don't, if it's, if it's above that threshold of what I can tolerate and it's overwhelming, then the, the best thing I can do for myself is actually to take a break, to withdraw my attention not because I'm running away, but because I recognize I actually want to be with this, but right now is not the right time. And so it's that sense of leaving temporarily with the intention to come back later. And so in that leaving, in that turning away, there's any number of things that we might do to develop more resource and resilience, whether it's reaching out to community, engaging in a hobby. Um, getting more sleep. Yes, eating well, exercising, getting sleep. Noticing um, nature. Beauty. Um, all of these different ways of, of meeting our needs and increasing our baseline level of well-being. Eating when we're hungry. Yeah, yeah. Um, even things that, you know, if they're done compulsively are unhealthy, right. can be healthy when done with the right intention in moderation, like watching a movie or, you know having some ice cream. It's like if we're doing it out of a sense of self-care and choice rather than compulsively, and and really what we talk about with somatic experiencing is um, receiving the nourishment of healthy pleasure, healthy, non-addictive pleasure, which is so essential for us as human beings. And so what we're doing here in this process is, again, feeding literally and figuratively feeding our heart, feeding our, um, our being, our spirit, so that then when we come back to that pain, that wound, that injury, when, when we do the wailing, the crying, the punching, the, 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 the punching bag, or, um, it's, we're not, we're not crushed. We're not overcome or overwhelmed by it. Yeah. Yeah. It had never occurred to me until I was years into recovery that just withdrawing from compulsive behaviors was not the solution mm. itself mm. is the 
a behavior had to be replaced yes. with a better behavior right. or tool. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you a story about, um, just a very brief one, I think this one's in the book too, about um, the the power of these nonviolent communication tools for what you're just uh, describing uh, in terms of choice and, and behavior and... Um, self-care, self-parenting, there's kind exactly. of a lot of things that, that it's called. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this, uh, someone's at a workshop, they hear this perspective that I was sharing earlier that comes from humanistic psychology from Rogers and Maslow that, you know, human beings have shared universal needs and that all of our behaviors, all of our actions in life can be seen or understood as an attempt to meet these needs. Even when we are, you know, undermining ourselves on some level, we're still trying to just get our needs met. So he's driving home and he reaches for a cigarette and he pauses and recognizes, all right, okay, if this stuff is worth its salt, if this actually works, if it's true, then I'm trying to meet some need. Okay, what need am I trying to meet? So he thinks about it for a little bit and then he realizes, okay, all right, I want to relax. I want to take my mind off things. I've always dreamed of dying of lung cancer. <laughs> I want a break, you know? Yeah. So he says, okay, right. I, I want, want a deep breath. Right. I want, I want to take a break, relax, and take my mind off things. And as soon as he becomes aware of what he's actually needing, he recognizes precisely because of the other things you said, I don't need to smoke to do that. I got far better ways of relaxing and taking a break than poisoning myself and giving myself lung cancer. Stop smoking. So obviously not everybody can kick a habit like that so quickly. This person happened to have that capacity. But the, the, the point is when we're unaware of what we actually need, we are bound to continue repeating the same behavior because we don't know why we're doing it. Yes. As soon as we can start to identify, okay, what are the actual deeper needs here? What is this giving me? What do I get out of this? That that's wholesome, mm -hmm. right? That that I actually do value and want for myself. Then we can start to make more choices. We actually can be more creative and reckon and evaluate our behavior and see: is this actually meeting that need? Are there other needs it's not meeting? And and then as we start to learn that for ourselves more, then we be able we're able to apply it to others. We're able to understand others' behavior from that perspective, which opens the doorway to actually having a more meaningful conversation, to be able to hear one another at that level of why we're doing what we're doing, even when we disagree with our choices or our actions or our strategies. How often in our society, which is so material and uh, money-focused, how often those healthy ways of relaxing are probably taken off the table by the person who feels like I need to be working all the time. Mm. I don't have time to watch a movie right. or I need to have six pack abs. I can't have an ice cream cone. Mm. Yeah. The, the pressure and the, the power of our society's uh, myths of what it is to be happy and successful and successful um, are are crushing when we're unaware of them. They 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 limit our ability to be fully human because they give us this very narrow space to live in, and then we judge ourselves against this unrealistic, fabricated ideal that doesn't actually exist anywhere. What are the what are the downsides? What are the drawbacks of having you know so much money? You know, and and it's the things that we don't that we don't see or that we don't don't necessarily.
necessarily think of. So what are some tools for nonviolent communication? Let's mm-hmm. say there's somebody listening right now yeah. who's in a relationship where disagreements so often just escalate mm-hmm. into yelling. Yeah. Um, obviously, you can't control what your partner does or how they react. Yeah. What can you do? Yeah. Or a person do mm-hmm. to try to keep their side of the street clean mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to then decide if they are working on becoming better alone or if this person wants to work with yeah. them, which to me is yeah, the yeah. ultimate sign. Is this a partnership or not? Right, are you right. on the same team? Yeah. Yeah. Great. And that's what you just said is, is there's a, a lot in what you just said, just in how you asked the question. Right. And so number one is the recognition that if we want to have better conversations, if we want to have more meaningful relationships, the place to start is with our relationship with ourself and our needs and senses. Does yeah. that start with listening to your body as well, or what? Yeah, yeah. What, what are the kind of the things that you, the 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 tools you break right. out when you want so to identify me, your needs? Sure. So let me so let me run down a, a whole a whole list of of tools for folks who are listening. Um, and by the way, in that the question. way this this book is extremely practical in the ways you list how to go about yeah. getting to this place. It's not just concepts. Yeah, no, and that was my, very much my intention with writing the book, and I, I consider it a field guide for communication and relationships. It's really a step-by-step process to how to integrate these perspectives and tools into your life. So um, I so just taking the scenario that you laid out of having a relationship where you keep arguing, um, I think that one very powerful thing that one can do just initially is outside of the time that we're arguing when we're actually getting along to try to see if we can make some agreements about how we talk together. This is a very, this is an overlooked, uh, overlooked tool, but a very powerful one. And and usually we try to do that when we're actually arguing and that doesn't work. (laughs) So when we're not arguing to say, you know, Hey honey, listen, you know, I know that we love each other a lot and we're both just doing the best we can. I'd love to see if we could find a way to communicate when we're heated about something uh, that's not going to be as difficult for us where we can get over the fight sooner and just get back to really enjoying each other. Would you be up for just kind of brainstorming together and seeing if we could come up with some agreements or guidelines for how we have those conversations when we're when we're arguing? And again, as you're saying, like the willingness of the other person to partner with you and actually see, are we on the same page about our values for how we actually want to be in a relationship? That's important information. And our willingness to change. Yes, exactly. Our willingness to look at ourselves, to, to change, to work together. So this is, this is one just very general thing that we can do right away with the other person is trying to craft certain agreements and then, and then coming back to those, relying on them. Now, in order to actually be able to use those agreements, that takes practice, that takes, uh, that takes tools and training. So, uh, the first and most essential step is learning how to be more aware of ourselves in a conversation. 
And um, you mentioned being aware of your body. That's a very that's a very powerful uh, method because our body is constantly giving us information about how we feel and what's important to us, but we overlook it. We override it a lot of the time. Are my palms sweating? Am I clenching my fists? Do yeah. I have a stomach ache? Is my foot tapping? Is my breath rate changed? Do I have a knot in my stomach? You know, am I? Yeah, am I clenching my fists? Do I feel like I need to go take a nap? Mm-hmm. You know, right? Do I so, want to withdraw? So all of those signals, being able to to listen to them and then actually identify what's happening. So that's one that's one method to bring more awareness into our conversations. Taking pauses, just like being able to take half a breath or slowing the pace of our speech down a little bit, that can bring more awareness and choice. And so, you know, fundamentally, if we want to have a more effective conversation, the first the first foundation is being more aware. If we're not aware, we're on automatic, and we're not able to really hear one another. Yeah. So if we want to have different conversations with the people in our lives, at, whether it's our partner, our family, our coworker, the first thing to do is to learn, is to practice, how can I be more aware? How can I actually be present with myself, with the other person? And as you said, I go through a lot of different tools for doing that, and I've, we've mentioned a few of them here, being aware of your body, pausing or slowing down. So this is the first, this is the first step. Another very... Um, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you just a short story about that. Um, I was teaching a retreat. One of the things I do is I, I'll teach like five, six, seven day uh, training on on these on these tools. And at the end of the retreat, we were talking about what everyone learned and just a kind of a short closing circle where people would share a few things of what they're taking away. And so the microphone comes around to this one guy, um, mid seventies. Colorado kind of cowboy type. So it was really, he didn't say much the whole week. So I was really curious. Like, you know, what's this guy taking away from this? So he takes this long pause when he gets the mic. And then he says, you know, what I'm leaving here with is uh, I realize that my wife is the person I talk to the most, but talk with the least. I'm going to change that when I go home. So this is the this is the the power of of being more aware is that we recognize there's another human being in front of us, and am I actually relating to that person, and am I giving them the chance to really relate to me by showing up? So this is the first thing is just to show up, learn how to be more present. One of the things that does one of the gifts that that gives us in addition to actually being able to enjoy one another, is when we do get reactive when someone does piss us off. We have a little bit more space inside to not snap immediately because we're more grounded. We're more clear. We can take that breath to just have some choice and say, okay, instead of trying to like blast you out of the water, I'm going to see if I can come from a different place. And so that takes me to the next tool. And it's kind of a way of reminding yourself too that you're not trapped, Mm -hmm. that maybe it's the fight or flight part of your brain telling you this is life or death this right. relationship is going to end you're never going to have satisfying relationships in your life you're not worthy yeah. of respect your day is shit your life is shit you're going to die alone right all of those all of those stories that can, that can flash through at like lightning speed and then we just take one breath and it's all a dream it's all a thought and then we're back in the present moment again and anything is possible um, another really powerful um, tool for communication is being more aware of our intentions and where we're coming from. So important. So important. So much of our communication is nonverbal. 
It's in our tone of voice and our body gestures, our facial expressions, and all of that nonverbal communication is generally shaped by our intention. Mm-hmm. So, and it's usually what our partner or somebody else reads because, yes. like a good movie, the real speeches are the subtext. Yes. It's what's the way it's being said, exactly. the way the person says it, because right. we so often, you know. Uh, tell white lies we shade things you know to maybe avoid discomfort or to pass a aggr- passive aggressively try to get something we want mm-hmm. or put a mask on so mm-hmm. that we can get along yeah yeah and what these what these tools provide is another way of meeting those needs uh that doesn't come at a cost when we when we bend the truth or we try to manipulate things to have our way, all of those things come at a cost. And to be able to be more open and engage in a dialogue that says, here's what's important to me, here's why, and I want this to work for you too. So let's talk about it. So coming from coming from a genuine intention to understand and actually have a dialogue, and that's not not always easy to remember to do. Mm-hmm. But again, when we can, and and even just like a simple phrase, like, let me see if I understand you. Mm-hmm. Let me see if I can hear what's going on for you. Even something like that can start to change the tone and the atmosphere of, of a conversation. So I always like to point out that when I talk about these tools, that these first two major uh, shifts in terms of being more aware and having a clear intention – None of them have anything to do with what we're saying. Right. Because communication is primarily not about what we say. It's about where we're coming from inside and about the relationship we're building, the quality of understanding and connection that we're able to create with the other person. Intention, choice of words. Mm -hmm. Are we listening? Yeah. So... um, So then we we start to get into some of the more... um, Some of the more communication technique tools of being able to be aware of our own feelings and needs to identify what is actually happening for us, what matters for us, and to be able to try to hear what someone's saying underneath their words. And oftentimes the messages, particularly if we're fighting or arguing, the messages are not coming with nice wrapping paper. <laughs> you know, they're or clarity. Often, yeah. They're they're often uh, couched in a narrative of blame, a narrative of should, Always, right, never. wrong, exactly. Those kinds of, of trigger words. And so um Hopefully, we can be in a relationship professionally, personally, where there's a shared commitment to having more skillful communication. But even when that's not the case, we can learn the tools of being able to translate what someone else is saying Mm -hmm. so that regardless of how they're saying it to us, we can hear the message underneath their words. It takes training, but it's completely possible to hear What's actually going on for this person? What are they responding to in the environment? What's the actual situation that's that they're commenting on? You know, whether I agree or not, there's something that they're they're upset about. Okay, let's see what what is that? How do they feel? Mm-hmm. What are their emotions? What's going on for them? And why? What 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 are they needing? What matters to this person that I can actually relate to and connect with? When I can listen in that way, I don't have to argue. I don't have to disagree necessarily because I'm just trying to hear what's important to you. I can still disagree with your views. I can still disagree with your choices, but I don't have to fight you on what you're saying because I'm hearing what's underneath it that I can actually um, 
understand. And then when we can do that for the other person, and this is, this is the, um, the place where conversations break down. It's not just listening. It's actually helping the other person to feel heard. Mm -hmm. If we don't feel heard, we're just going to keep banging at the same thing until we feel like the other person gets it. So one of our jobs in a, in a conversation is to help the other person feel heard and understood so that their nervous system can settle enough that they can listen to us. Mm -hmm. And so we can do that by telling the other person what we understand. Here's what I'm getting from what you said. You know, this is what it sounds like is going on for you. Am I hearing you right? Is this what's up? When the other person knows that we hear them, they're done. It's like, yeah, you got it. Thank you. <laughs> so we're validating their attempt to express something. Yes. We're not necessarily, we don't, you know, this is the, this is the great strength of, of empathy is that we don't, we can, we can connect. We can understand someone without needing to agree with them. Right. We can hear what they're saying in their heart, what's actually important to them on the human level without agreeing with the narrative that they're telling or their interpretation of the events. Yeah. Yeah. I was playing hockey one time and, um, it's the same group of guys, you know, it's been that way for years. And one of the guys I was playing with, um, kind of barked at me about, uh, I don't even remember what it was that I, I, you know, wasn't passing the puck or I, you know, wasn't getting back on defense or, or something like that. Uh -huh. And, and I went right into, you know, have you ever played defense? Right. Have you ever skated back across the red line? You got to be fucking kidding me. Uh -huh. You're, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know, and then it was just tense right. silence for 20 minutes. And I uh -huh. kind of, you know, thought about the stuff, the work I do in support groups and uh -huh. reflect what is my fear? You know, uh -huh. what is, that's where I go to very often uh -huh. is what am I afraid of? Yeah. And I realized that I didn't have a problem with the truth that mm. I might have made a better play. Uh -huh. And I said to him, Mike, I, I, I like you and I don't want to argue with you. I don't have a problem with what you said. I have a problem with the way you say it. Yeah. And he apologized nice. and we laughed. Yeah. And yeah, then yeah, I punched yeah. him. <laughs> well, and the other thing that, about that story that I love is that on some level, it sounds like you both wanted the same thing. We did. Right? And that's, the, and that's the thing that we miss when we're in conflict is when we stay focused on the strategies on you did this and no, I didn't and you have to do it that way, then we're just, we're just at war. Yeah. When we can actually hear what matters to the person underneath that, why, we recognize that, oh, we want the same things. And it's not always that we want the sounds like in that situation, you both wanted more teamwork and kind mm -hmm. of, you know, uh, working together. It's not always that we want exactly the same thing at the same time in that as it, as it was in that situation, but that we share the same needs that, you know, you were wanting to be included and considered, uh, and I was wanting more space and, uh, you know, flexibility to be able to do my thing. And like, yeah, I, you, we, I recognize that I want to be included and considered some Sometimes, and you recognize that sometimes you want space and flexibility. So we can start to hear each other at that level. And then once we identify what actually matters to us, then we can start to actually be creative about, okay, now that we're, now that we know what we're actually talking about, because as you said, as we were saying earlier, it's never about the thing. 
it's never about did you leave the toilet seat up or not. It's never about did you leave the dishes in the sink or did you get the project in on time. It's about what actually matters underneath, which is do you care about me? Um, are you are you keeping agreements? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, are we aware of our impact on others and working as a team or not? Have you fallen out of love with me? Are yes. you still attracted to me? Yeah, I need to know that I matter. You know, right. I need to know that you care for me. Or so. Um, yeah, when we when we can hear each other at that level, there's a lot more room not only to understand each other but to be creative, to work together. One of the biggest revelations for me has been the realization that there's almost nothing that I can't talk about if I can find the right words to say it at the right time mm. in the right tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it it has changed my life so dramatically. Mm. The willingness to have difficult conversations. Yeah. Um and and you know what what I've seen in myself and what I'm hearing from you and tell me if I'm wrong here is that what makes that possible is the deeper connection with yourself. Yes. That we can't actually feel the confidence to have those conversations if we're not able to be clear in ourselves about what's going on, our fears, our projections, our hurts and and that so much of this work of skillful communication is about our relationship with ourself and transforming the ways that we're thinking about things mm-hmm. and being more aware of what's actually happening so that we have the clarity to say to someone, listen, you know, I really, I really value our working relationship. I want us to be able to continue to really um, support one another and do great work together. And there's a couple things that happened last week that just really rubbed me the wrong way. And I don't know if they were intentional or not, but I, I didn't want to just hold it inside. So yes. I wanted to have a conversation, Yes, you know, and we're framing things. You know, I started by framing the things in terms of what's going well, what I want to create together and what I want to build on. And then it's not like, this terrible problem and you did something wrong. Right. It's more like we're both working together towards this thing. That's a really good thing. And now the conversation is just about, yeah, let's, let's mm-hmm. do that. Why not? Sometimes prefacing something with reminding the person what I like about them, what I value in my relationship yeah. with them can be huge. Yeah. I, um, I'm pulling out my book now. I talk, mm-hmm. I talk about this in chapter 12, where the, the tool is a tool called framing, which is how do we present what we're talking about with the other person? And, you know, there's, there's, there are different ways of saying, of, of doing that. One is, is what you're pointing to, which is appreciation. Mm-hmm. Really, really powerful way to begin a conversation is with sharing what, what we appreciate about the other person. Another way is what I was saying before is sharing our, stating our shared needs or shared goals. You know, what are the things that, that we have in common that we want to work towards with the other person? Another is uh, not in all contexts, but in some contexts, sharing our vulnerable feelings, actually opening our heart. You I'm know, scared. Exactly. I was just going to say to say, you know, like, I'm really nervous to bring this up. Because, you know, I really want to be understood and I want this to go well. And sometimes when we lead with that vulnerability, it softens the other person. They're like, oh, what's going on, man? Tell me, mm-hmm. right? Um, or, um, or starting with empathy. Mm-hmm. Starting with 
putting your attention on the other person and and trying to offer some understanding for what you think might have been going on for them or where they're at. Like you know, I know, I know you're you're going through a lot right now. You've been really busy and stressed out, and I can imagine that you're just doing the best you can to to meet all your responsibilities. And I just wanted to let you know that I, I see that. And uh, is that am I mm-hmm. kind of reading you right? Is that kind of where you're at these days? And just starting with that, so the other person feels like okay, you get me a little bit. Yeah. What about saying "listen up, fuck face" and then breaking a dish? <laughs> is that is that in there? So you know, it is. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Uh, I say again and again, communication is not about what we say. It's and I said it five minutes ago, and I'll say it again. It's about where we're coming from and the quality of connection or understanding we're able to create. So if you can say to someone, "Listen up, f face," and break a dish, and they look at you with a twinkle in their eye and smile and go, "Yeah, what's up?" Great, right? <laughs> it's not about what we say. It's about is the other person hearing us? Yes. You know, and so, you know, I can I can I can say, you know, I can say to a good friend of mine, "Listen, dumbass." Yeah. And he'll chuckle and say, "Yeah, what's up?" Right? right? So, it's a it's about that sense of what can the other person really hear? Mhm. Which I I think so often can get lost in uh political correctness. Yeah. Um when it in my opinion, it can it can really kind of become extreme and and people yeah. are looking for hurt mm. or intent when sometimes there really isn't mm-hmm. uh it or at least it doesn't feel yeah like that and yeah uh, you know that and that's not to say that there doesn't need to be a consciousness in society about right. a way to respect everybody yeah yeah, that's it's a very it's a very complicated it's a very sensitive complicated area of course because there's ignorance and you know when and we, malice yeah you know yeah and so you know when we say something um, certainly out of malice but even even out of ignorance um, that that's painful for someone else there's that sense of like separating one of the things we talk about in communication training and in a lot of kind of equity and justice work is separating the intention from the impact. Mm-hmm. And that's is a really uh, helpful tool just even for personal communication and relationships is to recognize that there is a difference between our intention and the impact of our actions and vice versa for others so that sometimes we end up arguing because something that you did or said had an unintended consequence or mm-hmm. impact on me. And I'm bringing forward like this is how this affected me and I need you to take responsibility for it. And the other person isn't able to hear that because they just want to be understood. Look, I wasn't, that wasn't what I meant. Mm-hmm. That wasn't what I was trying to do. And we're actually having different conversations. Right. There are two, there are two tracks that are occurring and neither of us are hearing one another. And one of us, in order to actually resolve the situation, one of us temporarily needs to pause, put a hold on what we're saying long enough to hear the other person say, okay, so what you're saying is that this is how this affected you, regardless of what I was intending. This is how this landed for you. Okay, I get that. I'm sorry. I, you know, I really hear that. That now, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Actually, here's. I would love you to understand what I was actually trying to do. You know, I think that one of the things that that's that's so tragic and dangerous about where we are today is is that. Each it, not only the intensity of the polarization politically, but that each side demonizes the other yes. and reduces the other to this to this satirical kind of ca- character Cartoony. cartoon characterization, which you know it's 
if there's going to be any, I mean, we're facing such massive challenges as a species and as a society. Um, I mean, the, our elected officials can't even carry on a conversation long enough mm-hmm. To do business, to do their elected job, the necessity for being able to reach with our our heart, to reach across to somebody who sees things drastically differently than us and say, all right, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a leap of faith and assume that as a human being, that you are a, a moral feeling, ethical person, and that even though I am vehemently opposed to your rhetoric and your strategies, that somewhere in there, that there is a kernel of truth and goodness that I can relate to. Mm -hmm. And let me see if I can try to understand something about how you see the world until we can start to do that. There's no way we're going to be able to face what's happening. One of the stories, and, and, and you know, as I, as I hear myself say that, right, there's that voice inside that says, well, what about, what about Nazis, right? There's a truth. There's, there's goodness in them. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm so glad you're Jewish. (laughs) Yes. Otherwise, I would have probably edited that part out. No, I w- I wouldn't have. But yes, right as now, a Jew, I, as right, a Jew, I have the I have the I have the, the the freedom of of being able to say that. And when I say that, I mean so you know, there's there's stories about um, there's stories about. Uh, I mean, as human beings, we have a potential. We have the the um, incredible potential for compartmentalization and delusion. And so there's stories about SS soldiers, right, going out and, you know, murdering people during the day and then coming home to their family and kissing their children, And right? So um, this, one of the, the story that I want to tell is about this um, um, African-American author, actor, musician, Daryl Davis, um, who uh, grew up overseas, and so he wasn't exposed to uh, racism uh, in this in this country uh, in the way that anyone with uh, who's grown up here was. And so, when he first experienced racism when he was a Boy Scout marching in in the streets of rural Massachusetts, and people started calling names and throwing bottles at him, he couldn't understand. You know, how can you hate me if you don't know me was the question he had. And so this question kind of set him out a little bit on a mission in life to try to understand why can people hate me if they don't know me. So um, he's playing. So he ends up uh, learning, you know, play the piano. He's a uh, blues, boogie-woogie piano player. He's playing a gig down in Maryland at a white bar in the 80s. And at the end of the gig, um, this white guy comes up to him and says, I've never heard a black man play as well as Jerry Lee Lewis. So um, Daryl smiles and he says, uh, you know, that's kind of funny because uh, Jerry Lee's a friend of mine. And uh, he learned, Jerry Lee Lewis, a white piano player, says, you know, he learned to play the way he plays from black musicians like me. Jelly Roll Martin, Fats Waller. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so this white guy's a little bit taken aback. He says, oh, uh, I didn't know that. So they sit down and have a drink. They start talking. So it turns out this guy's a member of the KKK. Holy shit. So Daryl, in his kind of characteristic fashion, though, Daryl comes from this from this perspective of how can you hate me if you don't know me? 
and really just trying to understand this guy, understand things from his perspective, listening, trying to establish a relationship, a friendship um, based on his values of mutual respect and kindness. Over time, they develop a friendship, and this guy, not by Daryl trying to convince him of otherwise, but just by being himself and giving this person uh, an experience of having a relationship with someone who's African-American, this guy ends up realizing that his views are not accurate, and he ends up leaving the KKK. Not only that, through this one relationship, Daryl gets interested and decides he wants to write a book about the KKK, and this man ends up introducing Daryl to all these other members of the KKK in this particular area in Maryland. And through the power of conversation, dialogue, and particularly friendship, really looking for the good in others and listening to them and trying to understand where they're coming from, more than 50 members of the KKK end up leaving the organization, including the Grand, the grand Wizard the whole organization collapses. Indirectly, Daryl was responsible for more than 200 people leaving the organization. Wow. Through the power of his ability to come from a genuine intention of wanting to connect on the human level and see the good, see the, the humanity in someone else whose choices and actions he absolutely, completely disagreed with and condemned. So when I say that very charged, powerful statement um, that someone may, you know, call me to account for when I say, you know, I believe that there can be good in a Nazi, mm -hmm. I'm not condoning the actions. I'm not condoning the views. Right. But I'm saying that they're still human being. Yes. And so, and so often it's, it's a misguided way of them dealing with their fear. Right. And being brainwashed and having views that are that are not accurate. And so, you know, whatever political irk we're talking about, whatever faction we're talking about, where we where, you know, we see someone, you know, to say, to recognize like you know, put yourself in someone else's shoes and imagine that your whole family, your whole history, your whole culture, your whole identity were built around a story mm. of, you know, this particular um, angle and how difficult it would be to see things outside of that perspective. And that, you know, the choices and the actions might be coming from a place of wanting to feel solidarity and loyalty to your community and, you know, genuinely wanting the best for, for people. And that obviously I'm not in any way condoning violence. Right. Um, the whole, this whole, uh, all of my work is, is, is dedicated to creating the conditions for more peace on, on our, in our society and on our planet. Um, and giving people tools to engage with those who are, who are making choices that create harm for human beings and other species on the planet, giving people tools to actually advocate for, for, for change in that way. But the ways we're going about it obviously aren't working. Right. Which is what your book is all about. Yeah. The book is called Say What You Mean. It's by Nazi apologist Orin J. <laughs> Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> I'm kidding, man. It was such an eloquent way of talking about how to try to find the humanity in others because yeah. it's a launching point yeah. otherwise we're reacting from a place of fear and that's how we find ourselves yeah. in so many of the yeah. the, the problems that we have today yeah. the, the lengths people will go to avoid looking weak in front of others have probably caused more harm mm. to the planet than uh could ever be calculated 
in my opinion. But uh, where can people find uh, Say What You Mean? Yeah, so Say What You Mean, a mindful approach to nonviolent communication should be available at bookstores everywhere and online. And if uh, folks want to find out more about me, um, I'm on social media. And uh, the best way to actually stay in touch and learn more is through my email list. And I send out a couple emails a month with like an article I wrote or a talk that I gave. Um, and I have a free guided meditation series and an ebook that I give away when folks sign up for my email list. And the best way to do that is actually um, by text message. Uh, I'm always feel self-conscious when I share this because it's very infomercially, uh, but here it is nonetheless. So uh, if you send a text message to the number 44222 mm-hmm. and just put the word guided, like guided meditation, okay. um, you'll it'll walk you through the steps and get signed up for the email list. So it's the word guided to 44222. Great. And um, is there a website where people can find all your social media yeah, handles? All, yeah, orenjsofer.com, O-R-E-N-J-A-Y-S-O-F-E-R.com. Dude, thank you so much. What a... Uh what an awesome episode on such an important topic. I thanks for it. having me, Paul. Yeah. It's been great to be here with you. Many, many thanks to uh, Oren J. And as I was listening back to the episode, I realized, uh, I don't know if we fully got the description of what somatic experiencing is, but when he was talking about animals in the wild and the way that their body deals with getting rid of PTSD, when you see like a, a dog when it's wet and they they shake, uh, animals do that in the wild as well after they experience something traumatic and it releases the trauma from the muscles and the body so that the body can kind of clear the slate and move on. But as people, we don't really have ways of of doing that. And somatic experiencing is a way of creating a safe environment uh, with the the therapist. And and it's not talk therapy. It's it's uh, it's kind of different than that. It's it's kind of difficult to to put into words to explain. But I've done it, and it's amazing. It was it was life changing for me, and it's a way to draw the trauma out of the the body uh, in a physical way, not through not through words necessarily. So I hope that. Uh, completes that thought. Uh, One of our sponsors for today is the podcast, uh, The Hilarious World of Depression. And if you like this show, I'm sure you will like The Hilarious World of Depression. It's a very funny show about a very unfunny thing. And uh, the host, John Moe, talks with people, some really funny people from comedy and entertainment about their mental health. They talk about issues like addiction, imposter syndrome, and clinical depression. And this season, they're talking to some big names like Pete Holmes, Whitney Cummings, and Anil Dash. Is it Anil or probably Anil Dash? Uh, past episodes have had guests like Andrew Zimmern, Hannah Hart, and Andy Richter. And the hilarious world of depression is moving, insightful, and surprisingly funny. And it's a side of the entertainment world people don't often hear about, but really should. So subscribe to The Hilarious World of Depression wherever you listen to podcasts. That's The Hilarious World of Depression, a podcast. Let's jump right into the surveys. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Pale Blue Mom. And she writes, I was working at a ranch in my mid-twenties, and on the night of my birthday, in parentheses, I was not working, I got stoned with some friends. We went out into the horse pasture under a full moon. We came upon one of the mares, and she had just given birth. We got to watch the foal take its first steps, and I got to name it. Uh, 
Then we stripped and went through the creek and headed back to the ranch. It was one of the happiest nights of my life so far. I liked it so far, too, because I think what she's kind of saying is, I'm probably going to top that moment, too, because I got a big, rich life ahead of me. I think one of the one of the ways that we are mean to ourselves is we can tell ourselves, I'm never going to have good moments again. I've Whatever few highlights I've had, that's it. It's all downhill from here. I've blown it. I'm going to die alone in a ditch without teeth. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself raggedy taint, torn between two assholes. She writes, my boyfriend, who is an amazingly gifted writer, shared five of his short stories with my dad, who is also a great writer, in a very different way than my boyfriend is. My dad didn't like my boyfriend's stories, and he called me to ask if my boyfriend can handle, quote, the truth when it comes to feedback. I said, sure, because my boyfriend is a well-adjusted adult who knows his work, which is experimental and weird in the best way, isn't for everyone. I thought my dad would simply say the stories weren't for him and wish my boyfriend good luck and maybe suggest some things to read that he might like. I wish to the fucking gods of fuckdom that's all that happened. On Christmas Day, the first time I ever brought my boyfriend home for Christmas, my dad pulled out a binder in which he had placed printed copies of the stories my boyfriend had emailed to him, marked to shit with an actual red pen. Among other atrocities, my dad rewrote a paragraph to make it, quote, better. He cast an, uh, an entire story aside, saying, I don't even know what this one is, and informed my boyfriend as to what art is, telling him, you can't just do whatever you want. <laughs> to his credit, my boyfriend held his tongue so as not to start a fight for my sake. For the next year, visits with my parents were totally strained, as my parents want to see more of my boyfriend and me, but for obvious reasons, my boyfriend isn't a fan of spending a lot of time with my parents. By the time Thanksgiving rolled around, I thought things were starting to relax a little. Then, for Christmas, my dad gave my boyfriend a subscription to a writing magazine that refreshed my boyfriend's anger tenfold. Thanks to a heavenly, holy stomach flu, we didn't have to face my parents and risk another Christmas critique. Luckily, my boyfriend and I spent that Christmas puking our guts out on the living room floor under our Christmas tree. It was our first tree together on the first Christmas we spent living together. I have never enjoyed a barf so much in all my Christmases. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Man, I'm so grateful for the surveys that you guys filled out. This is a shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Muddled Mayhem. He is uh, identifies as straight. Uh, he's in his 30s. He was raised in a totally chaotic environment. He was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, I heard the word covert incest for the first time on your podcast and realized listening to my mother having loud, moaning, dirty, talking orgasms while being grudge-fucked by multiple partners in the next room at age 12 isn't just my bad luck for being born into a poor white trash family, but that I am an actual victim. And as a result of that realization, I need to reassess my entire fucking existence. 
He's also been emotionally and physically abused. He writes, from age 4 to 11, my mother was married to a violent-tempered man who would beat me for, quote, screaming like a girl while happily laughing and screaming while playfully being chased by my big sister and stand over me with a belt and beat me while making me do push-ups to, quote, toughen my sissy ass up. Uh and then wake me up with a belt beating for sucking my thumb while I slept. So on and so forth. Holy fuck. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I have no positive experiences with the, quote, world's best stepdad. However, I do have some fond memories involving my mom, but I do not let those good feelings interrupt my decision to keep her out of my life for the sake of my health and well-being. My mom is very artistic and encouraged that in me, and I'm thankful for that. Darkest thoughts, secretly draining my savings account, packing a backpack and disappearing into some foreign country. Darkest secrets, when I was a kid, I would masturbate to the sounds of my mom having sex. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you, being a kid and getting jerked off while sucking the tits of an attractive middle-aged woman. This fantasy, fantasy shows that I was exposed to sex way, way too young. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm going through a hurricane of emotions and mental illness right now due to a horror story childhood bubbling up at age 37. I realize I wasn't this way when we met, and I hope it won't be this bad forever. Please understand that none of this is a reflection of you and that I never wanted to cause you pain. Um, I should ask people to specify who they'd like to say it to as well. Maybe he's saying that to me. What, if anything, do you wish for? That my pain and mental illnesses, my pain and mental illness don't negatively affect my beautiful babies. Have you shared these things with others? Not nearly enough, and that's why I feel like a volcano on the verge of eruption every minute of every day. How do you feel after writing these things down? Acknowledging and accepting all of this is the first baby step on a long, hard road, and I hope I have what it takes to make the trip. What, if anything, would you like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Life is too short to be anyone else's beast of burden. Don't be afraid to drop other people's baggage. Amen, brother. Amen. And thank you for going so deep with the, all of that painful stuff, man. Wow. I'm sorry that that was the childhood hand of cards that, that you got dealt Um and buddy, I think you can get through this. It's, I think you hit the nail on the head that it's just baby steps on a long, hard road, but it does get better along the way. And I'd like to make more paper noise while I talk about something important. Uh, but thank you for sharing that, man. Thank you for sharing that. These are some loves filled up by a guy who calls himself Crash. And he writes, uh, I love fresh strings on my bases, how twangy and bright they are. It makes me happy. That slight finger pain I get after a good bass practice session. When they're not hurting to a big degree, they're just warm and hurt a little. It makes me feel like I practice well. I also love their, uh, a section about 16 minutes into Jethro Tull's Thick as a Brick, where it reprises the intro guitar part, but with keyboards adding an extra melody onto an already beautiful melody. Then the vocals come in, and voc there are vocal harmonies that are so warm-sounding, it gives me so much bliss. It makes my body feel warm and gives me this sense of peace like nothing else. It's wonderful. I also love my cats hugging me and sitting on my lap or next to me after a long day of work. I was just over at uh, my girlfriend's 
last night and we were watching uh, Succession. If you've never watched HBO Succession, oh my God, it is so good. The characters are as reprehensible as you have ever seen anybody. And but it's it's just the writing is so smart. Anyway, um, so we're sitting on the couch and we're watching that and her cat, Pablo, is, oh my God, he's so fucking cute. And he will sit up on the back of the couch and and I'll just scratch his little face and he just purrs like a, like a little engine running and it just leaning back and my girlfriend and scratching Pablo's face and I just I just love it I just love it he also writes that first sip of coffee in the morning and you feel it go to your head a bit makes your insides warm and hits the taste buds just the right way thank you for that I also like that feeling when you're even when you're waiting for like your coffee to be made when you're at a coffee place and just the anticipation. Sometimes I feel like somebody waiting outside a methadone clinic when I'm in line because all of a sudden my mood is up and I know that I'm I'm going to get a slight reprieve for a couple hours of that feeling of, oh, I wish I was in bed or the world is uh, just so draining or my to-do list is too overwhelming. This is a shame and secret survey filled out, and I don't think I've read this one before. Uh, I apologize if I do. I got a little confused when I was going through the surveys because I was stumbling across some ones that I I was like, I I remember reading this one before. It's filled out by a woman who calls herself Scotland99. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s and was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, When I was around five or six, my friend, who was a year older than me and also female, asked me to enact a sex scene from a movie that she had seen. I didn't fully understand what I was doing, but in the beginning, I didn't hate it. From there, we were very close and met up in all of our free time. We kept on doing stuff. She always made me do stuff to her, but refused to do anything back. Uh, for a few years until we weren't in the same class anymore and fell out of touch. Throughout this time, all I remember feeling was overwhelming guilt. I didn't understand exactly what I was doing, but I knew it was a secret and that it was wrong. The village I grew up in was quiet and safe, so I would walk back from her house alone, feeling guilty and dirty, and I would pass the village shop and buy lots of junk food, and I would go home and eat it all. I gained a lot of weight as a young child. I would steal money from my parents to buy food and comfort ate away the guilt I felt from meeting up with my friend. Over time, the constant guilt has led to depression and depersonalization, but I'm too embarrassed to talk to anyone about it or to go to the doctors. During this time, my friend's older sister was aggressive and had anger issues. Her parents also went through a divorce and her life was quite hectic. She was totally out of control of her life and I think that was her way Uh, And I think that her way of taking control was by controlling me. I do not blame her, but there are a lot of unresolved feelings. We fell out of touch for some years, but reconnected again in the last few years. Neither of us have spoken about it, but I can see that she is still slyly manipulative. I tried to tell my mom about it 
at the time. I think she shrugged it off as childhood experimenting and never took it further or spoke to me about it again. I don't blame her at all because she was a young mom and now I know if I spoke to her about it that she would be fully supportive, but it definitely put me off talking about it. I can't help but think that if my friend were an older boy, then it wouldn't have been downplayed. I've never spoken to anyone or mentioned my mental health concerns to anyone. I've tried to kill myself a few times, but no one ever found out. I feel so alone. Have you ever been physically or emotionally abused? Uh, not sure. I remember when I was very, very young, around three or four, I stole something from my nursery, got caught, and got in loads of trouble. I remember telling my mom that I hated myself and I wanted to die. I was so guilty and ashamed. She held me and said, don't say that. You are not allowed to say that. You can't talk like that. I know she was trying to be soothing, but I think that installed... Uh, in me from a very young age that I can't talk about my mental health and that I wasn't allowed to think things like that. I don't think this was abuse, but I think there is now a massive barrier between us. We are incredibly open with each other about everything else, and we do talk about other people's mental health. I just feel that my emotional well-being has been neglected. Are there any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, it was my best friend. We had and continue to have many good experiences. I find it confusing, and so I try not to think about it. Darkest thoughts. I have a sexual desire to be raped slash dominated by a man. I am into older men. I get turned on by incest. I think about child porn, but once I snap out of it, I get upset. I could never sexually abuse a child, and I hate myself for thinking about it. I am so embarrassed and ashamed by my own thoughts. Darkest secrets. Sometimes I think back to the times I did stuff with my friend, and I get off to it. I cry after. I hate to think about my seven-year-old self in that situation. She didn't deserve it. I also once stole 20 pounds from a disabled relative when I was around 10 years old. I've never told anyone, and I still feel extremely guilty about it today. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Rape, incest, although I do not and have never been attracted to anyone in my own family, I still enjoy the porn. Also, since the first sexual experience I had was as a child, those elements still show up. I hate it. I hate being aroused by things I am so fundament fundamentally against. I just have to pause for a second and just send you some love and and give you a little digital hug and say, man, you are, you are not alone. What you, the way that your body and your mind are reacting to the things that you experienced are so human and sadly so common. Um, and the guilt that you feel, uh, you know, I know me saying, hey, stop feeling guilty is not the right thing to say or going to do any good, but, um, it's just, it's, um, I think talking about it with somebody who's safe is really the only way through this. There's no way around it and burying it, you know, it's like whack-a-mole. It's going to come up either through abusing food or isolating or depression and um, I don't know. Again, I'm not a therapist, but uh, I am crazy and that's got to count for something. 
What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to, and why? I want my friend to know how bad she hurt me. I am not good at talking about my feelings, so I've never been able to bring it up. I also don't know if she remembers or if it was just as traumatic for her. I want my parents to know why I act out. I love them so much, but again, I can't talk about my mental health. I want them to understand what's going on in my head, but I don't even understand it myself. What, if anything, do you wish for? I want to feel properly. I want to be okay. Well, I have to say, you are feeling properly given what you've been through. That is a normal response to an abnormal experience. Um, and processing it is the only way through it. And I know it's scary. I know it's scary. But you can do it. How do you feel after writing these things down? Tired. I am crying. This is the first time I put my experiences into words, so this is a little surreal. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? This doesn't need to control you. Thank you so much for that. That was really, um, really moving and uh, just sending you some love. Sending you some love. These are some loves from a woman who calls herself Tiva. And uh, she writes, I love when my cat walks down the stairs with me like we belong to each other. Oh, that is such a great picture. I love when drivers are polite and use their blinkers. I also love seeing considerate drivers in the merging lanes, letting other drivers in front of them. I love when the leaves on the trees sparkle in the sun. I love when people use their manners, even to total strangers. I love how my body feels after I visit the chiropractor. I love unexpectedly connecting with someone over the things we watch on TV and finding something new to watch. I really like the feeling of shutting my mouth when I'm feeling mad or judgmental instead of regretting my words and actions. I love seeing little dogs. Every time I see a little dog trotting down the street with somebody walking it, it just I just have to stop and take it in and I just laugh. It just makes me so happy. I love the time of year when we can open the windows all the time. I love taking naps. I love having meaningful conversations with people that leaves me learning something. I love when I, spe- when I feel special and unique. I kind of love when I am right and others tell me so. I love hitting every green light. I love when I have all my credit cards paid off. I love that you asked about things that I love because I was in a bad mood all day and this has helped me. Wow. Thank you for that. What a great what a great note to end on is is uh those times when we can just pull ourselves out of that tailspin having a shitty day. My support group meetings almost always kind of readjust my perspective on my life. And uh, a lot of times when people ask me, how you doing? Uh, I like to say that my life is great, but my perception varies. And uh, finding tools to help adjust my perception and, and yet also knowing when I'm minimizing something and that it actually deserves more attention and more weight being given to it. 
And boy, it is hard to know sometimes when it's one and when it's the other. But I guess that's part of what makes uh, our little victories more satisfying when we do overcome mental and emotional obstacles. Anyway, I'm starting to babble. I hope you enjoyed our episode today. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck and alone, you are not. You are not. There's so many of us that feel the way you feel. And you just, you can't see it when we're walking by you on the street. Actually, some of us you can, but um, yeah, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.